Welcome to the Peds NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. This is the fifth episode in a series on health equity in pediatrics, sponsored by the Dr. Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant, funded by the North Carolina chapter of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. This series is geared toward creating allies out of pediatric providers who can implement best practices for providing equitable care to the diverse group of children and adolescents we serve. You may have a different skin color, gender, sexual identity, body size, ability, or any number of other characteristics. But by knowing and understanding how differences can affect the health outcomes of children, you can be a better advocate for them. As we explore issues related to vulnerable populations in pediatrics, we'll name the simple best practices that pediatric providers can implement right now to make your care more equitable without waiting for policy changes, social programs, and cultural revelations to catch up. If you haven't already listened to episodes one through four, hit pause and go learn about health equity, internal bias, microaggressions, and the importance of names. But I also need your help to know whether what we're doing is actually working. So I'm asking listeners to complete a quick one-minute survey for every episode they listen to in order to better understand the impact of listening to a short podcast on health equity. The link is in the show notes or at thepedsnp.com. I'll remind you again and give details about how you can win a gift card at the end of the podcast. But first, let's talk about a very important new guideline that was published this year and its implications in the health equity conversation. In January of 2023, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued its first comprehensive guideline on the evaluation and treatment of children and adolescents with obesity. It's designed to guide the medical care of children aged two years and older whose weight puts them at risk for comorbidities. They offer clear criteria on the diagnosis of obesity based on BMI percentiles for age and sex measurements that start at age two years. The guideline doubles down on BMI as the appropriate measure, despite the fact that BMI uses European male body norms and its intended use is in public health rather than individual medical care. They define overweight as a BMI in the 85th to 95th percentile, obese is a BMI greater than the 95th percentile, and severe obesity is a BMI at 120% or more above the 95th percentile, which means that the child's measured BMI is greater than the 99th percentile BMI for age multiplied by 1.2. The guideline emphasizes that there's no evidence in watchful waiting, so we need to take the bull by the horns to avoid delays or barriers to evidence-based care. But there's risk in being a bull in a china shop or a bully if you don't approach the sensitive conversation about weight carefully. An inconsiderate approach can lead to impairments in the patient-provider-family relationship, the development of inappropriate relationships with food or eating disorders, and avoidance of healthcare altogether. Stigma surrounding weight and weight bias goes far beyond body image. In fact, mental health concerns are the most common health concern reported by children with obesity, 
according to one study in the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. Let's talk about weight bias, what it is, how it affects kids and teens, and how you can use these new guidelines while still providing compassionate care to children and adolescents with obesity. Weight bias is a form of stigmatization, whether implicit or explicit, against people who do not have socially accepted norms for their body habitus. And that results in discrimination, bullying, harassment, and altered treatment by people in their lives, like teachers, family, classmates, and even healthcare providers. A child may eventually internalize the negative sentiments, wherein the feelings of inadequacy gain traction and affect mental health and self-perception. This can marginalize people with obesity, leaving them vulnerable to social inequities that can also affect health outcomes. Some of these consequences include unhealthy eating patterns, such as binge eating, depression, anxiety, poor self-esteem, social anxiety, decreased working memory, reduced health-related quality of life, and additional weight gain. This vicious cycle can lead to poor school performance, social outcasting, and therein affect education, future earning potential, relationships, and quality of life. One driving force behind weight stigma is the inaccurate belief that people who are overweight or obese are to blame for their size, rather than the reality that obesity results from a complex combination of genetics, psychosocial influences, physical environment, culture and society's perspectives on food, and other social determinants of health, like food insecurity. It's time for us pediatric providers to start viewing obesity as a chronic disease, rather than a stigmatized failed character trait, like somehow the individual lacks the motivation and control to diet and exercise. Particularly when we're talking about kids, An approach to dealing with health and weight that doesn't negatively impact mental health and uses a health equity lens is of the utmost importance. Remember best practice number three from the mini-series, identify your own biases? In this guideline, the AAP actually recommends this best practice by telling providers to, quote, uncover and address your own attitudes regarding children with obesity, end quote. As we try to approach weight stigma, we have to uncouple the phenotype from personal responsibility, meaning that there are so many interconnected features that contribute to obesity that a single pointed finger will be fruitless. Blaming oversimplifies the problem, making it seem like just eating less fast food will allow a child to suddenly slim down. Obesity results from a combination of genetic, cultural, socio-behavioral, and environmental factors, such as one's genes, parenting, learned health behaviors, overeating behaviors, mental health, food sources, hormones, and physical environment, like the safety of your neighborhood. Another large factor in the development of obesity is adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, which are commonly caused by social disruption, like divorce or experiencing or witnessing abuse negative health behaviors, such as binging, hoarding, or stress eating, and chronic stress response, the type that's often experienced by people in poverty, although ACEs can occur at every socioeconomic level. And as we talk about social determinants of health, we must link structural racism and discrimination experienced by communities of color with obesity. 
social inequities that put these communities at a disadvantage in education, high-paying jobs, home ownership, among others, end up contributing to the litany of factors that impact the development of obesity. Remember our example from episode one that talked about a school-aged child with hyperlipidemia whose mother worked multiple jobs and used public transportation, which made grocery shopping difficult in their unsafe neighborhood that also happened to be in a food desert? These complex interrelated issues are often experienced by people of color, which we must recognize as we provide expert pediatric care. Because implementing the textbook answer won't address the inequities that exist in these communities. Once you've explored your bias and start to view your patients through a lens of health equity, you can do a better job of recognizing obesity as a chronic disease influenced by a multitude of factors beyond the child's control. By acknowledging the factors that affect a child's weight, productive conversations on weight management with the patient, family, and multidisciplinary team can finally happen. Another good step at the beginning of the conversation is to understand how the child and caregivers feel about size. Some cultures and communities view a chubby baby or child as a good thing. It means they can afford to buy their food. It represents love around a table and social gathering of loved ones. Or maybe even it's a more attractive way for a person to look. Before you go barreling into the conversation, know your audience and gain their perspective on their child's growth and size so that you can partner together on health goals. So what should those conversations look like? Well, that brings us to best practice number six. Use person-first language. For example, say a child with obesity rather than an obese child. This is a good practice for any person, patient, or community, according to the CDC. In the larger effort to overcome the systems and policies that have led to health inequities, rehumanizing individuals and groups is an important first step to address all people respectfully and inclusively. Not only does this person-first mentality refer to people with disease processes, but also to communities and subpopulations. For instance, instead of minorities, let's say people from ethnic minority groups. The CDC acknowledges that culture and social norms may change how we address people. And as you learned in the last episode, it's always valuable to ask a person how they identify themselves and the communities to which they belong. Pohl and Himmelstein in 2018 assessed the preferred language of healthcare providers addressing pediatric patients with obesity. The 148 adolescents reported low preference for terms like extremely obese, obese, and fat, compared to terms like weight problem, plus size, and BMI. Children who internalize weight stigma have a greater risk of mental health problems, so we must consider the words and phrases we use so as to prevent perpetuating negative self-image. Words like curvy or big may be better suited for children and adolescents with a higher level of depression and anxiety compared to words like heavy that may be useful in a child who hasn't internalized the bias. Using person-first language, we can talk about people in larger bodies as a way to humanize people first when their body weight is part of the conversation. And be clear in your discussions that these conversations have nothing to do with beauty or their worth as a person. Tell them, you are awesome, every body is beautiful, and my priority is your organs. 
So part of my job is to help those organs work as well as they can so that you can do everything that you want to do. Just like you help children with asthma have the best functioning lungs they can have, you'll help kids with obesity make their organs work as best they can. Remove the stigma that their weight determines their worth as a person and instead help them see that your goals are the same as their goals. Why does destigmatizing language matter? Why not tell it like it is and give a little tough love? Because we all know that children are vulnerable and depend on their family members to care for them. Kids don't pick their genes or family heritage. Most kids don't have jobs. They're not the ones doing the shopping or paying for groceries. They didn't cause their own ACEs or create environments burdened with social disparities. But they are on the receiving end of a lot of discrimination based on their appearance. And even if you think the parents are the ones that need the tough love, the kids are listening. Weight management is an entire family effort, but parents who perceive stigmatization by their healthcare provider are at risk of disconnecting from the relationship by seeking a new provider or avoiding future appointments. Kids and families need empathy. Another way we can address these issues is starting conversations on nutrition, parenting, eating practices, support and resiliency, and activity in infancy. Tell families what's normal, what's expected, and how they should start these practices. Why would you wait until age two and the child's BMI is first measured to begin talking about weight, eating behaviors, calorie content, and the quality of their food? Particularly in primary care, where you're building relationships from the newborn visit, Take a holistic approach to these issues when you assess the child, family, and their social determinants of health. Encourage breastfeeding in all babies whenever medically and socially possible, because breastfeeding is protective against obesity. Make sure that caregivers understand infant hunger cues and satiety. For babies who are bottle-fed, teach caregivers about paced infant feeding, where the baby's in control of intake, rather than guzzling an upturned bottle. Help caregivers understand the different reasons infants cry, rather than using a bottle for pacification with the first whimper. Encourage healthy mealtime behaviors for toddlers. A screen-free environment, ideally with the entire family at the table. Allow for some leeway on toddler wiggles and the need to get up from the table, but otherwise limit walking around the house with a nugget in hand or a constant bottle of milk. Avoid juice as much as possible and advise water, an age-appropriate fortified milk, and whole fruits instead. Review serving sizes and make it objective with measuring cups or counting the pieces. Make suggestions about grocery store choices that fit the family's needs, budget, and culture. For instance, in food deserts, frozen fruits and vegetables may offer as good of nutrition as fresh ones with a longer shelf life. Certain fresh produce options may last longer in the fridge, like baby carrots or apples. And options like mini sandwich bags of the family-sized goldfish are a fraction of the price of the 100-calorie packs. The pediatric provider should know local resources for families with food insecurity to improve access to nutritious foods. Let's recap the health equity approach to children with obesity in order to avoid weight bias. Once you examine your own bias and recognize obesity as a chronic disease that's impacted by many factors outside of the child's reach, 
you can meet them with empathy and view the patient through a lens of health equity. Using person-first language, further evaluate factors related to their social determinants of health or adverse childhood events that may negatively influence the child's weight. Then, partnering with the caregivers and child using motivational techniques, begin to follow the AAP guidelines on the management of obesity in children and adolescents. Be aware that your words can either add to the stigmatization that ruins your relationship with the family or positively influences the journey to a healthy lifestyle. There's a big asterisk on these practices. While this series is focused on practice changes that individual providers can implement right now to improve the health equity of children in communities that are often marginalized, It's important to note that broader change still needs to happen in culture, society, and health policy. For instance, we need to repeal policies that allow structural racism, promote insurance reimbursement for obesity-related therapies, and confront big industries like sugar and corn that heavily influence the food on our tables. Now let's talk about that post-episode survey. Simply go to thepedsnp.com, The link is in the show notes and click the button that says take the health equity survey on the homepage. The link will take you to a one minute, that's it, one minute survey about the episode you just listened to. Once you submit the anonymous voluntary survey, you'll get a link to the page where you can enter your email to win a $15 Amazon gift card. I won't share your email and it's not for marketing purposes. It's just to pick a winner for the raffle. Whether you enter the raffle or not, Thank you for completing the survey and sharing your feedback. Your participation is so important, so please take a moment to complete the survey, then share with a friend, your colleagues, and your classmates. I'd like to thank the diversity, equity, and inclusion experts who generously volunteered their time to serve as consultants and editors for the content in this episode, which was generously supported with funding from North Carolina NAPNAP's Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant. Follow me on Instagram at the PedsNP podcast. Email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can complete the survey, see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember, this isn't just a podcast. You're caring for the person first. I'm Becky Carson. Take care. <laughs>